the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In this episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with Nature Scott advisor Ian Cornforth and we discuss natural flood management, catchment management, the state of Scotland's water and the practical steps farmers can take to improving the water environment. Hello Ian, how's it going? Very well, thanks Alex, yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, thanks, I'm good. Ian, um, this is uh, this is Thrill of the Hill um, and this is your first time on. Um, do you want to give the listeners a bit of a, a background for yourself, uh, mention some of the work you do with Nature Scott? Okay, thanks for that and uh, hello everyone. As Alex says, my name's Ian, Ian Cornforth. I work for Nature Scott. I've been with the organisation about seven months now and I am the lead area officer for North Ayrshire and Arran and I have uh, a responsibility mostly to do with development management that is all sorts of planning casework from wind farms to fish farms and increasingly now working in the EEC scheme, the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme, looking to work with landowners to try and make proactive change on their land to benefit a wide range of outcomes and also increasingly to look at site condition work, so protected sites that the, the country has designated. I'm one of the team responsible for making sure that the condition of those sites is maintained and where where we can improve them. Perfect. Sounds sounds good. Ian, the the idea behind this podcast series is that we discuss the the topics that are affecting sectors involved in the farmed upland environment. Um, I imagine a lot of farmers will have some experience managing the water environment on the uplands, but can you lay out what we mean when we talk about natural flood management and where catchment management comes into that as well? Perfect. So yeah, water, I think moving forward, if it isn't already, is a a key consideration for all land managers, but especially for those in the uplands. And I think we're we're looking at two key things here when we talk about water. We're looking about too much water, too little water, and uh, the third thing is the quality of the water. So there's three things there, and they're wrapped up in both these notions of catchment management and so I think it's probably best to start with a, an understanding of what the catchment is. So the catchment is everywhere that the rainfall collects and feeds into a particular river. So for the River Clyde, that would have quite a big catchment area. For a smaller river like the River Luga or the Sanitz water, it will have a much smaller uh, catchment area. So it's the kind of high ground where the water collects, flowing downhill, if you like, to where the, the rivers are. So that's the kind of catchment and within a catchment, there are a lot of different water management issues, and that might be uh, diffuse pollution, it might be acidification, it might be sedimentation, it might be flooding, <clears throat> and it might be in terms of uh, changes to the morphology, the structure, the shape of the river itself due to historic practices. So there are a lot of management issues within a catchment. Natural flood management is a kind of modern term to try to capture what nature has, has done for us over the the centuries and 
and millennia, if you like, which is try to retain water within that catchment without man's influence. So natural flood management is a is a new way of for us to try to work with nature, if you like, a nature-based solution to retain water for longer within the catchment area. And that obviously helps twofold. That helps to slow the flow of a flood and event. It won't stop a flood and event. We're not talking about really stopping big floods here through natural flood management. We're looking to slow the flow. So that helps with flood management. And by retaining water in the catchment, that helps retain water within the catchment, which is really good for summer drought issues and summer water retention. So it's kind of a natural flood management helps address <clears throat> flooding issues, and that might be winter or summer or any season. But increasingly, when we're looking at water, water, water scarcity, having that ability to retain water on our land is really critical moving forward. So kind of natural flood management, yes, it kind of addresses that key aspect of helping to reduce the impacts of floods. But more than that, it's got a much wider benefit of year-round water manage, water quantity management. And alongside that, which maybe we'll talk about a bit later, it's also got the benefit of water quality management as well. So there's a lot of a lot of things rolled up in that, that question and answer there, Alec. Yeah, yeah, there's a, definitely a lot to, to discuss there. You, you touched, Ian, on something that I was going to ask anyway. Um, we're here to discuss um, flood management, um, but uh, we've seen some pretty exceptional weather conditions right now. There's a lot of the country that is dealing with water scarcity. Um, how does flood management um, and, uh, and catchment management fit in with issues like climate change and changing weather conditions? Yeah, I think for, for us in Scotland, what we're looking at is probably warmer summers, wetter, stormier uh, winters, but with all year round greater variation and severity of those events. So we're looking at a very much changing climate. And unfortunately, a lot of that change is already locked into the system. So yes, we're trying to reduce carbon emissions and we're trying to <coughs> absorb more carbon into the landscape, but we're going to have to deal with this kind of locked in impacts of climate change. So in terms of how natural flood management and how catchment management can help. They can help enormously. But with everything that you know we're looking to do as a land management practice, it depends on the land that we're looking at and the scale that we're looking to work at. So there's the kind of you know usual caveat with all these things. It's no one size fits all. And it's uh, trying to imagine that you know one landowner doing their very best to reduce flooding isn't really likely to have an, a much of an impact on the catchment scale. It could very much have an impact on their individual farm or estate scale. So we're looking at, you know, understanding that when we talk about natural flood management here, we're looking to reduce the impacts of floods. In order to do that on a big enough scale, and reduce you know significant impacts of flooding downstream you're going to have to work you know right across the uplands and it's also very important to know that the, the really extreme flooding events the one in 100 and one in 200 year flood events are probably not going to be addressed by natural flood management alone it's going to be a combination of lots of 
natural flood management uh, interventions across the catchment combined with a more traditional land management uh, engine hard engineering uh, solutions downstream to you know to act in combination so it's those two things that are really really critical to appreciate and Ian you mentioned water quality there um, in terms of um, Scotland's water quality overall in the farmed water environment can you talk a bit about what the water quality is like broadly yeah I think What's what's been really beneficial to help us understand that is the EU uh, Water Framework Directive, and that has forced, for want of a better phrase, uh, countries to really get to grips with understanding the water quality in their water systems, and then coming up with a plan to how to monitor and improve that. So we're looking here at river basement management planning as being the basis for us to understand this and the Clyde region is the region that we fall in, in in this area of the country that I'm based which is Ayrshire and if you look at the Clyde River Basin Management Plan there it's been in operation since 2015 and every six-year cycle so it's 2015 to 2021 and we're now operating the cycle 2021 to 2027 there's been a small but significant increase in the water quality of our water bodies, and that's standing water and flowing water. And there are maybe up to five or six different measurements used to quantify good water qualities, which is what we're aiming for. So in order for a water course or water body to be elevated from moderate water condition or water quality to good water quality, each one of those different variables, these five or six different variables, has to be in good quality condition. So the kind of headline story is that, you know, about <clears throat> over the last five years, we've had a 7% improvement in the number of water bodies in good condition, which is good, and that is a, a good improvement. But what that does kind of ma potentially mask is that for the, the water bodies that haven't made that jump from moderate to good water quality a number of the, those individual variables such as their ability for fish to move through the water course the water chemistry the amount of suspended sediment in there all of those might have improved significantly but there might still be one variable such as river structure that might be not in good condition so that will affect the overall uh, quality score for that river so there's a kind of quite a complicated answer there so apologies for that but i think what it says is that the the work done to date has been significant and made a significant impact in a our understanding of the issues affecting the water quality and b then how we look to plan and implement the changes to carry out the required works and now we're coming up into the, the, the cycle 2004 21 to 2027 and if you like a lot of the easy hits have been achieved so that the hardest work now is still to be done if you like and that's really focuses on a lot of key aspects of you know fish barriers physical condition water flow levels water quality and increasingly the impacts of non-native invasive species so there's a lot of key factors there that are still affecting the water quality so whilst water quality is improving 
and the regulation around that is is pretty good on a, a European mm -hmm. level. There's still a lot of difficult work to overcome to get you know the vast majority of our watercourses in in good ecological condition by 2027. In your mind, Ian, what is the single biggest factor that's holding back water quality in Scotland that, that maybe something that farmers and landowners could tackle? Yeah, uh, I think I think there's two questions there. I think what's the single biggest issue, I think, is different to what land managers can do. So I think land managers can really look at water quality and water quantity uh, issues. So those are two of the, the five key factors that I mentioned. Their barriers to fish movement, physical condition of, of the watercourses, and invasive non-native species. So yes, you know, landowners can address all those issues, but I think things such as diffuse pollution, uh, wastewater discharge, and maintaining flow levels within rivers by increasing the capacity of their land to store water so that come this time of year when you look around and the water courses are really really low if we can look to have more on-site retention of water that then slowly trickles through to the water courses and maintains that flow level within the, the rivers <coughs> for salmon and other species that depend on that flow rate and flow level then I think that's really, really useful. So the kind of the two things there, I think, yes, management of invasive non-natives is great. Yes, trying to re or reconfigure the, the to create a more natural uh, river structure. Those are fantastic things, but they're quite they're quite hard to do and take a lot of time. But these kind of simple, more more simple wins by removing as much as possible over fertilization and loss of sediment into the watercourses, you know, these diffuse pollution incidents, and trying to regulate the flow levels of the watercourses more. I think that's, that's that's definitely within the reach of every farmer and every landowner, land manager, to try to make that change in their actions wherever possible. Because I think the critical thing to understand and this is a well-used uh, phrase, but, you know, how management has occurred previously is not how we need, to, how we have to manage our land moving forward. The kind of business as usual approach is not not effective and not efficient. It's not efficient for farm businesses, and it's certainly not mm -hmm. the best way of managing the, tw the twin kind of crisis mm -hmm. of climate change and the biodiversity emergency. So, yes, you know, farmers, they've got a, a key role to play in, in these water management issues, I think, Alex. Brilliant, brilliant. And Ian, in terms of natural flood management, presumably there's massive benefits to farmers getting involved in that and maintaining the, the water on their land in good condition and having that level of control over the, 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 the state of play of, of water on the farm. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's... There's a number of key aspects to this. I think if if you have land that is regularly uh, affected by too much water, or conversely not enough water, if you can look to address that within your land holding, then that surely makes good farm business sense. <clears throat> Looking to manage water levels in that way 
often involves putting in uh, water ret- retention features, and those might be ponds, settlement ponds, might be buffer strips alongside uh, water courses, it might be woodland creation, and it might be peatland restoration. So all those things not only retain water, but they are very effective in also reducing diffuse pollution. So if you can find a way of stopping <coughs> pollution of the watercourses, then that will obviously stop you maybe losing important nutrients from your land and certainly getting not having to worry about having a regulatory visit from SEPA or an organisation like that who are concerned about pollution of the watercourses. So that's a good thing as well. And also, I think... <coughs> If you if you look at the one of the easiest, well, one of the theoretically easiest approaches to retaining water on your land is, is to have better soil condition. So, more worms, better soil aeration, that obviously creates a more porous soil, better water retention, and all those things. A poorer soil, more worms, <coughs> has got to be good for. I would imagine most farm businesses. So if you if you think about naked self-interest, this type these types of <clears throat> techniques should be very beneficial to most farming systems. And obviously the allied benefits to the water environment and the wider biodiversity and climate change agendas are very clear to see as well. And I think, you know, I think it's easy to outline the benefits of farmers. I think the, the difficulty is how do you make these changes where is the advice and obviously this is part of this system here that this program of events that you you're running alec but also to know that the funding is increasingly coming for people restoration and woodland creation schemes looking to create these multiple benefits arising from these nature-based solutions such as natural flood management so i think there's lots of good news there it's just for each individual landowner understanding which techniques might be applicable to their land and how they get the guidance and where appropriate the funding to help them enable those. And when we're talking about enabling action, Ian, what are some of the main methods of of natural flood management that, you know, is accessible and achievable for farmers and landowners? Where, where, Where would the starting point be if I were a landowner and I knew I had an issue? What What should I first be looking at? Yeah, I think you know you're gonna you're gonna, as all uh, land managers know better than I, you're looking to work with the land. So you know where water moves already, you know you're gonna try to work with that or work or try to prevent the water moving in a way that you don't want it to to go. So you know you understand you're looking to understand current water movements and where that causes you a problem try to look, are there any kind of natural uh, existing landforms that you can modify to retain the water and slow its flow? Or are, are there situations where you can create bunded ponds on the land that retain the water within a particular area that doesn't cause you too much uh, financial loss, even if it's for a short term, so a short term retention pond, and then look along your, your water uh, buffers, you know, so already farmers and landowners are looking for uh, good 
agriculture and, and environmental condition. So, you know, there's those kind of key uh, actions that most landowners are already aware of, you know, the buffer strips, fencing cattle out of watercourses, and then looking to see, you know, okay, so I've got a, a grass strip that's fenced. It might be three meter away from the watercourse. So that's quite good. But can I stick some trees in there to increase the, the ability of that watercourse to absorb the water? And one of the things that we, we're, we're finding a lot of food kind of research and understanding now is that along the edges of these buffer strips is where a lot of the access tracks are running for farm access. And often that might mean that the water runs down the access track without permeating into the buffer strip. So it's understanding how your actions as a land manager could be tweaked to allow the, the natural flood management systems that you've put into place to actually work to their most effective. So yes, buffer strips are good, but the more rough and varied and different types of vegetation and trees that are in there, the better. Retention ponds on slopes is, is at the base of slope, sorry, is very good to try to slow the flow before it goes into the, the water course itself. So the settle out of diffuse pollution and sediment and retain, you know, farmers' most valuable uh, asset, their soil, rather than it being flushed away down the river, never to be seen again. So, you know, there's lots of easy techniques for there. Leaky barriers on streams within within uh, farm holdings. So that's basically just felling a few uh, small trees. Conifer trees are ideal because they retain their needles. Water can pass through this barrier to degree, but because it's a barrier, some water is prevented from passing through the, these small upland streams. That then pulls the water on the land, slowing the flow, and obviously added benefits for species such as red shank, curlew, snipe, oyster catcher. We've got these wetted grasslands that are very good for these types of uh, wading farm and wading birds that are very much under pressure as well. So again, another example of, of a win-win there. Just thinking about it there, Ian, listening to you speak, is there an opportunity there for some green engineering? I know um, use of willow for, uh, for riverbank restoration has been really important. I mean, that there must be a crossover there, a discussion to be had about that. Absolutely perfect. I think <clears throat> there's a wide range of traditional techniques and more modern techniques for these kind of green engineering and organisations such as the Tweed Foundation and the River Forth uh, Foundation. There's lots of great examples online about the use of <clears throat> living willow spiling for these kind of soft barriers that absorb water uh, absorb water but absorb the energy without deflecting the energy back into the water course and causing damage elsewhere so they they absorb the energy they absorb sediments they allow species to nest and roost within those structures and they're very natural looking and can help help connect the river to their natural floodplain which normal hard engineering uh, solutions often prevent and it's that kind of disconnect between the land and the water courses that green engineering really helps to re-engage with so yeah i think you know there's a there's a wide range of things that we could talk about here but i think you're absolutely right green engineering is a key technique just because it's an 
it's green, it doesn't mean it it doesn't have to be done properly and it can be quite complicated to do and put in the right place and and engineer. It still needs to be engineered so that it's fit for purpose, but it's a more natural looking and a more natural affecting kind of technique. So I think it's absolutely an appropriate tool to have in a landowner's toolbox and be aware of that it might be the, the best technique to have in on an, any given situation. Ian, earlier on in the discussion, you mentioned that uh, collaborative action was probably um, a, a more achievable way of, uh, of of meeting some of these issues with, with natural flood management. Um, are there are there any examples that you can bring to bring to the discussion about? Uh, sorry, let let me start again. There, I've, I've lost my train of thought. Ian, earlier on in the discussion, you talked a little bit about the, the need for landscape scale approaches to, to natural flood management. In terms of collaboration between landowners, is this something that's happening in Scotland? Is it achievable? And, or, or are there small things that can be done on the individual level that can be just as impactful? Yeah, I think the twin track approach of individual landholding and combined collaborative approaches across land holdings and ideally within the catchment so an in, kind of if you like an integrated catchment approach is absolutely critical to the success of this and sepa have you know have had a lot of success with their diffuse management catchment approaches where they've identified priority catchments <clears throat> to look at diffuse pollution and address that quite Quite successfully in some situations, not all, but in some in some situations, and I think that's the kind of approach that moving forward, then you know I know we're in a kind of transition period at the moment with the with the EECS scheme, but I think moving forward those are the types of things that EECS funding or whatever it will look like after 2024 might be really critical in having that joined up approach where you know you get more bang for your buck if you've got that joined up approach across multiple land holdings and i think the beauty of the natural flood management techniques is that they will really pay dividends when they are scaled up over a catchment so the more landowners that can take part in them the bigger their influence will be across the catchment and also by definition, the more you have per land holding, the better that land holdings water management will be, both in terms of excess water and insufficient water. You mentioned the the eeks there, Ian. Um, obviously, we're we're moving into this transition period, as as you say there. Um, with an eye to, to future policy, do you have um, any thoughts on the kind of things that you would like to see Scottish government developing? Uh, obviously, we just saw the, the Nature Restoration Fund um, has, has just shut for applications, but um, hydrology was a really big factor um, in putting together applications. Um, so the, there is a focus on, on the water environment and, and, you know, where would you like to see that go? Yeah, I think the Nature Restoration Fund was a really good kind of maybe litmus test for what might come in the future. I know there are lots of different schemes being mooted at the moment, and I'm I'm low enough down the food chain not to be uh, <coughs> burdened by those kind of high-weighted discussions. But from my perspective, I think, you know, we're looking at catchment level management. 
And that's the widest possible definition of catchment level management, you know, not just the water issues, but every type of biodiversity and effective uh, climate change adaption. I think adaption is often missed off the, the conversation here and climate change mitigation. So I think we're looking for an an holistic support scheme that benefits the water environment and at the same time fully pays cognizance to the kind of things I mentioned before, the the twin crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. So, you know, we are looking at one of these kind of pivotal times where with the correct funding for positive outcomes in the land and uh, water environments, the Scottish Government has got a really good, really excellent opportunity, I think, to you know make those differences that landowners are crying out for. They want the financial support to carry out the work that we as society are increasingly demanding. And I think that phrase is a, is a fair phrase to use, demanding that, you know, all landowners, all land managers, and I, I place our organisation, Nature Scott, within that bracket. You know, we manage land as well. We have to be seen to be doing the best we possibly can in the situation that we find ourselves in. And for land owners and land managers, such as farmers, they need the financial and advisory support to enable them to to make those changes. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it, any, uh, it'll be a surprise to any of the listeners, but... Uh, Provision of public good, we know, is a priority for Scottish government going forward as they develop policy. So, um, yeah, as, as you say, um, being able to, to demonstrate the, the benefits of, of land management to, to the general public and, and people who maybe aren't involved um, in land management um, is, is going to be really important. Just on, on that issue, Ian, Natural capital is often a concept that's that's a little difficult to, to really put our fingers on and, and to, to demonstrate that to, to people. Um, how do we how do we put a value on on natural flood management and retention of water? Um, is there any any figures you can can bring to bear on that? <clears throat> Not figures at the moment because I think part of part of the this whole idea of natural capital is a kind of rapidly evolving area and i think for for myself you know i i've more recently uh, been working with this idea of ecosystem services so ecosystem services are the, the types of services that the environment provides to mankind and that might be food or water or clean air and so that that notion of ecosystem services is now being wrapped up in this understanding of natural capital, how we value those ecosystem services. Your question is a really important one. It's important for many reasons because it helps landowners understand the impact of their work and why they're doing it. But increasingly, it's important because it helps industry and businesses understand that there is a potential monetary value to managing land in a in a way that maintains these ecosystem services and if they can if a financial market can be found to enable businesses to invest in natural capital 
then it's a really positive way of adding in additional support to land managers because with the best way in the world we just talked about how how we think scottish government might look to finance and fund land management moving forward the government doesn't have enough money to do what's required and it's only through the involvement of the private sector industry and pension funds and those kind of things that the the millions of money, of pounds that is currently available will be turned into the billions of pounds that is needed to make effective land management moving forward so this is another long-winded answer saying that you know once we understand the economic value of the benefits that nature provides we have a much better way of understanding how we utilize and more widely use the more wisely use those natural resources. So I think we're we're getting there, and we're investing as an organisation money into trying to figure out how we how we weigh up the natural capital of areas of land, and we're starting to do that type of case study work now. So I think it's a it's a kind of watch this space kind of approach that I think. I can suggest at the moment, Alec, but I think natural capital is going to be absolutely huge. And, you know, if you have, if land owners have areas of rich natural capital, then there'll be funding streams to help maintain those. And if landowners have got, for whatever reason, degraded areas of natural capital, then I think there'll be funding to help restore those. So I think, you know, there's there's key opportunities moving forward with this natural capital approach to pump hugely larger orders of magnitude more money into the environment which is obviously what is essential now for the government and society to reach net zero and help climate change uh, help address climate change it strikes me ian that um, one of the things that uh, you and i have discussed in the past together um, one of the things that, that we're discussing internally here at sac is that uh, in developing climate change policy, it's been really helpful to quantify farm emissions and, and generate carbon footprints. And we don't, we're not quite there with natural capital yet. We, we don't know how to, to quantify the value of biodiversity on a farm. Uh, and were we able to, to quantify that and qualify that development of policy would follow on? Um, so I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's that, that's absolutely uh, the key to it because I've been <clears throat> trying to increase my own understanding of this area of natural capital. I've watched a few recent webinars and there are a number of key elements which could be funded through natural capital and natural flood management being one, <clears throat> biodiversity being another. But those markets are very immature at the moment. And the two mature markets where investors can see the benefits of investing in nature-based solutions are woodland creation, where there are well-established you know, grant schemes and knowledge bases, and increasingly peatland restoration. And both of these, woodland creation and peatland uh, restoration, have got carbon code and carbon credits and carbon funding attached to them. So I think it's one of these situations, just to, to hark back to my last answer, where I think there is a real appetite to explore how biodiversity can be funded through the, the private sector. And if 
the woodland and peatland examples are anything to go by, then cleverer people than, than me will understand how that mechanism can be created, how it can be made fair and verifiable, and therefore how it can then be taken to market as something that is a, a justifiable way of investing money into climate change and biodiversity. And just, just on the issue of biodiversity more generally, Ian, what are the species that you think in Scotland could benefit most from, from natural flood management, from, from a kind of more inclusive catchment management? Yeah, I think the simple answer is almost everything within the catchment, because if you think about what we're talking about, we're talking about retaining water, we're planting more trees, we're maybe having more buffer strips with taller, more structured vegetation, we're maybe looking at more uh, and better soil management, which is a fabulous thing in terms of soil structure and soil uh, biodiversity, which is probably one of the richest uh, biodiversity areas we have, is the biodiversity underground. If we can ally that to crop rotation and reduced fertilizer nutrient inputs, or certainly more targeted and wiser inputs of these expensive chemicals, then I think that wading birds, uh, otters, freshwater, freshwater pearl mussel, salmonoids, eels, the whole range of species within the kind of farmed environment i think or the upland environment will really benefit so it's a kind of it's almost a a dream for me as a, a, a someone who's got real interest in biodiversity and effective and economic land management because this is you know sometimes it's seen as land management against versus biodiversity you can't have both the same things within that same environment but integrated catchment management when you're looking at natural flood management and the range of measures that we're talking about then it's about understanding your farm business or your land management business finding the bits of land that you can sacrifice sometimes temporarily sometimes permanently for these other uh, land holdings uh, sorry land management options such as woodland or wetlands and finding out where the financial support is to offset that any financial loss and if the farmer is lucky he can do the do the the, the enhancement work for woodlands and or wetlands on their least economically important bits of land and therefore, you know, hopefully we'll gain financially out of it. You know, and so there's there's lots of ifs, buts and maybes. But I think the critical thing for me moving forward is that, yes, business as usual isn't an option. But the new business normal, the new farm or land management option moving forward gives every every single aspect of <clears throat> a farm business and biodiversity climate change mitigation adaption, real positive outcomes. So, you know, I, I've always been a, a half glass full kind of person, but I think, you know, out of these challenges, I think there's the real opportunity for huge, huge benefits. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Ian, I'm going to be a bit unfair to you here. Um, I'm going to ask you, um, 
what is uh, what, what's your opinion on the the reintroduction of beavers into to Scotland and, and how that's gone in terms of natural flood management and and management of the water environment? Well, in terms of uh, of my personal view, and this is uh, very much my personal view, I was never sure about uh, the reintroduction of beavers, and I, I will say that because I thought at the time that the money involved in bringing them back to Scotland as a native species would be better spent elsewhere in terms of the the existing biodiversity. So that was a kind of my my baseline viewpoint on the subject. And obviously, you know, 10, no, that's, that was maybe 15 or more years ago. So now a lot of time has gone by, there's been a lot more research, positives and negatives, and I'm still very much on the kind of on the fence if you like in terms of i think in balance restoring species that have been lost due to man's actions rather than natural actions is something that i think we're we're duty bound to explore and in many cases implement so i think bringing them back in balance is, is something that is a good thing to do, but I think the the beaver situation in particular is one where there is going to be winners and losers. And I think it's important that society understands that when there is economic loss to landowners, then there is a, a scheme in place to address that. And I think as long as those are in place, and it's never going to be perfect, and you know, if you think to white-tailed eagles or ravens or a whole range of there are always going to be conflicts between biodiversity and land managers, especially on a on a very packed island like the United Kingdom. But I think in Scotland there is the space and the political and societal will for beavers to be reintroduced. The benefits are clear in my mind. There are lots of really benef- really positive outputs. And if we're just looking at natural flood management, then, you know, we talked about green engineers. There is no better green engineer than a beaver. The problem with beavers as engineers is they engineer for their benefit, not necessarily for the benefit of the humans Mm -hmm. that surround them. So there is always this kind of inherent conflict there. But I think on balance, to answer your question, I think beavers are a key part of our cultural heritage and something that as a key aspect of our natural heritage we should and have successfully brought back and i think you know that's contrary to my view maybe 15 years ago so yeah it's for me it's an evolving feast but i think it's a beavers are uh, an absolutely fundamental part of our natural and cultural heritage Brilliant. Um, the uh, the last question that I've got for you, Ian, I, I ask this to everybody who comes on the podcast with me. What have you seen recently within the industry that you think more people should be paying attention to? Um, any good or innovative practices that you want to draw attention to? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the work of various organisations has really, you know, went, <clears throat> as I say, I'm recently into this job, so I'm trying to get a feel for best practice and who's doing what and where. And I mentioned the, the Tweed Forum and the Fourth Rivers Trust. And I think they're really good examples of where they're, 
they've had a long track record of working with landowners over several years, over multiple grant iterations, and just they've got that trust now of landowners that you know when they say they're going to deliver, they deliver, they deliver to a high standard. And it, a lot of the changes that are is are required, such as for instance uh, changes to river structure and removal of fish barriers, for instance, there these require maybe three to five years of planning and uh, survey and acquiring the grants before they can be implemented. So the, the, that long-term relationship, I think, is absolutely critical. And, you know, nearer to home, the Ayrshire Rivers Trust is another key organisation where there are lots of great examples of them, not necessarily in natural flood management, but working with landowners of all types to try to benefit the the, the the wetland habitats within the district, but also by necessity, the terrestrial habitats, the woodlands and the and the riparian strips. So I think you don't have to look too far to find your, your local rivers trust or your <clears throat> fisheries trust. And they are doing really good work, often with volunteers, often with multiple funders to bring that funding package together to make things happen. So I think you know the the purpose of this podcast and organizations like nature scott and the rivers trust are to bring the requisite funding and advice and key stakeholders together and i think that's that's what i'm really pleased to see there's lots of good practice emerging that good practice has been quite rapidly circulated now as the, the need for you know innovative approaches becomes more and more critical. And as I say, if we can just crack the, the funding element of that kind of cycle, then we can get all this kind of brilliant work in place, fully funded, and with as many landowners taking them up as possible. That's brilliant. Um, well, Ian, I won't take up any more of your time, but um, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, um, thanks very much for having a, a sit down with us today. It's been really good to speak to you. Brilliant, and thanks very much for the invite. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a topic that I think is really critical, and uh, it's great that your questions really, I think, help tease out the key elements of, of most of, if not all, of the the topic there, Alex. So many thanks to you. Thanks very much, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thrill of the Hill, part of Scotland's Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you have any questions about any of the content covered here today, please do not hesitate to get in touch at 0300 323 0161 or contact us by email at advice at faz.scot.